The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome to the inaugural edition of the American Health Lawyers Association Fraud and Abuse Practice Group podcast. My name is Matt Wetzel, and along with my co-host, Kevin Raphael, we hope to provide you with a monthly update on hot topics and key stories about the most pressing healthcare fraud and abuse issues in the United States. Each month, we'll discuss trends in enforcement, critical updates in the law, and other important topics. And we hope to provide you with core insights on critical issues from how the government enforces the fraud and abuse laws to potential legislation that could impact how healthcare companies operate, to regulatory developments that may have an impact on your business or your clients' businesses. We also hope to share with you practical considerations for companies seeking to comply with the law. Before we start our first podcast today, I want to extend a huge thank you to our sponsor, the Berkeley Research Group. And uh, joining us from BRG today is Katie Norris, a director specializing in the pharmaceutical medical device, OTC consumer products and cosmetics industries. So Kevin, Katie, welcome. Before we start, I thought we might take a quick moment to introduce myself or ourselves rather. As noted, I'm Matt Wetzel, a lawyer with the law firm of Aiken Gump in Washington, D.C., where I specialize in assisting medical technology companies with their fraud and abuse issues and compliance program development, among other areas. Kevin, if you want to introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you, Matt. My name is Kevin Raphael. I'm a partner in the Philadelphia office of the Petrogallo, Gordon, Alfano, Bosick, and Responti firm. I'm co-chair of the Healthcare Litigation Practice Group, and I represent entities and individuals in the healthcare industry in government civil investigations, false claims act litigation, and government criminal investigations. Great. And Katie, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Matt. My name is Katie Norris, and I'm a director in the healthcare analytics practice at Berkeley Research Group in Washington, D.C. I predominantly work with outside counsel and manufacturers of medical devices and pharmaceuticals in support of compliance program development and implementation, as well as compliance with complex enforcement decrees such as CIAs and DPAs. Great. Well, we're really excited to kick off this podcast. And this month, we're celebrating the start of a new year. And so we're going to offer our predictions for what lies ahead in the healthcare fraud and abuse space in 2020. What can we expect from HHS and other regulators? What shifts or trends may be emerging? And uh, what should we see this upcoming year? So I'm going to kick it off here. And as many of you are keenly aware, uh, HHS's uh, Office of Inspector General and the Centers for Medicare and Medicare Medicaid services, both issued key proposals at the end of 2019 that would add new safe harbor regulations and modify existing safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute and add and modify to the exceptions under the Stark Law to account for value-based care and value-based arrangements. Uh, these proposed regulations are potentially uh, uh, potentially could dramatically change the way that the government enforces the fraud and abuse laws with the agency's stated goal of moving the healthcare delivery system from one that pays on a on a per service or fee for service basis to one that pays based on value 
quality outcomes and cost efficiency. Some of OIG's and CMS's proposals have raised several questions, in particular, the proposal to prohibit durable medical equipment makers, drug manufacturers, and labs from participating in value-based arrangements that are shielded from anti-kickback statute and Stark law liability. With comments due on December 31st, 2019, we can certainly or fairly predict to see a final rule from OIG and a final rule from CMS in the first half of 2020. Uh, given the broad and sweeping nature of the proposed rules, I think what we might see uh, is voluminous responses uh, sent to the to the agencies, recommendations, and especially criticisms from key stakeholders about the approaches that HHS is taking. So HHS has also indicated that in 2020, it plans to address additional value-based arrangements involving makers of medical products like drugs, like medical devices, through some additional proposed rulemaking in 2020, this time addressing product purchases and potentially focusing on the discount safe harbor. But for purposes of the existing rules, the existing proposals issued by uh, HHS, they're focused on patient care coordination and management and how they can appropriately structure safe harbors that would permit remuneration and compensation exchange between the parties that does not run afoul of the anti-kickback statute and the Stark law. I think this will be one of the key uh, developments over the course of 2020 uh, for all providers, suppliers, uh, manufacturers, everybody who is in the healthcare delivery space in the United States uh, should pay attention to how HHS addresses value-based arrangements moving forward. Another key update, uh, from my perspective at least, uh, in 2020 will be the revisions to the U.S. Physician Payment Sunshine Act. As many of you know, uh, the Support Act of 2018 expanded the list of covered recipients that uh, drug and device makers must report on under the Sunshine Act. And starting January 1 of 2021, uh, the Sunshine Act will require uh, life sciences companies uh, to track information about payments and transfers of value made to physician assistants, advanced practice registered nurses, nurse practitioners, certified nurse anesthetists, and certified nurse midwives. Uh, this is in addition to the existing disclosures required for physicians and for teaching hospitals. Uh, we had expected to hear from CMS this year in the 2020 physician fee schedule rule with significant guidance, although the agency did address uh, the expansion uh, and, and expanded the uh, nature of payment categories. Uh, 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 we do expect to hear much additional guidance from the agency throughout the course of 2020. So therefore, I would uh, encourage life sciences companies to pay attention to CMS guidance on the issue, uh, and as well as the additional uh, covered recipients as well uh, should be prepared uh, for the additional public disclosures under their names uh, and uh, some additional potential public scrutiny for their relationships with industry. Matt, this is Kevin. I just had a question for you on on one of the things you raised, which is value-based rules. Sure. What are the beneficial practical impacts of the value-based rules for those clients that you typically represent? 
Sure. Well, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I, maybe a two-part answer. So first, I represent mostly medical technology companies. And so uh, my clients are very closely watching the proposed rules and the final regulations that OIG and CMS will issue, primarily because of the agency's prohibition on certain entities from participating in value-based enterprises that receive protection under the kickback statute and the Stark Law. So understanding where HHS lands with that particular issue will be of utmost importance to my clients, and I'm sure to uh, many of yours as well. I think from a practical standpoint, looking beyond medical technology, what HHS has done, which I think is quite laudable, is try to uh, move away from a system of regulation that uh, governs interactions among different providers based on a fee-for-service model and is focused more on a value-based model. So currently, those laws might prohibit certain remuneration or certain compensation designed to produce better outpatient outcomes, designed to result in cost efficiency and the like, uh, simply because under the current regime, they might uh, be uh, prohibited or subject to kickback or stark law liability. So moving away from uh, that uh, regime to one that is focused on value and that really takes into account the practical consequences of value-based arrangements is uh, really really uh, quite important and something that my clients are, are definitely paying attention to. It's a great question. Thank you. Thank you. In fact, let me turn it over to you, Kevin, and, and hear your updates and predictions for uh, 2020. Thank you, Matt. So as, we, as a, draw, a year draws to a close, one of the common questions I get from clients in healthcare space is, what do we see 2020 bring as far as either criminal uh, enforcement priorities or the False Claims Act litigation space. Um, thankfully, the HHS publishes their um, work plans so we can divine a little bit from the work plans and also from our experience where we see criminal enforcement going in 2020. So the first priority, of course, continuing a trend over the last couple of years is going to be opioid enforcement. But in 2020, it, the HHS, OIG, and CMS are going to be data mining at the physician level to isolate and identify physicians that are over or that are suspiciously overprescribing opioids as part of the civil and criminal enforcement efforts. We would also anticipate that uh, urine testing and other ancillary services related to pain management and other practice areas where opioids are prescribed regularly will be focused upon next year. Um, as well as the continued focus on the distributors and manufacturers of opioids. I think another topic, another focus next year that will be large and will continue to grow is the government's focus on compound pharmacies, um, particularly in several areas, fraud related to the marketing of doctors, um, to uh, the patients who would be prescribed these compound drugs and payments and kickbacks to both the patients and the physicians in order to secure patients' flow for prescriptions to those compound pharmacies. Another focus is not just going to be Medicare uh, billing of compound pharmacies, but state-governed-based insurance programs, uh, which usually reimburse compound pharmacies uh, for compound drugs at a high rate and at high, uh, high dollar values. That will be a continued effort uh, to drill down and uh, fight compound pharmacy fraud. 
And lastly, there'll be both government and private health insurance uh, focus on fraud related to the ownership of compound pharmacies by physicians and whether drugs are actually compounded pursuant to the FDA regs instead of manufactured. I think the next big topic for government enforcement will be the standard anti-kickback statute, criminal and civil violations in pharmacy and durable medical equipment uh, lines of healthcare. And a new area will be home health. Uh, there were a number of reports published in 2019 about home health compliance with Medicare requirements. A number of home health care agencies were reviewed and reports were issued about the compliance. And strikingly, those reports found that a number of these companies were not compliant related to Medicare requirements for patients being homebound and that the services that were prescribed and uh, provided to these uh, home health care patients were not medically necessary. These reports indicate an over 50% error rate in home health care billing uh, and compliance regarding homebound and medically necessary services. And given that the, the Medicare pays approximately $18 million a year to home health, uh, the potential $9 billion overpayments being made, if that error rate holds true for, across the industry, would be a substantial incentive for the government in 2020 to continue to review and make home health compliance a, a focus of enforcement. And this won't apply just to home health care agencies. We expect that laboratories and other service providers that provide services to home health care will be a, a focus. And one of the issues related there will be documentation related to the homebound status of the patient. In 2020, HHS OIG will be publishing a final report on their findings from these various specific 2019 report findings. And that will be uh, of keen, uh, uh, keen interest to the home health care industry. I think the last area of focus will be investors in health care, particularly equity investors. We've seen a movement this year, particularly in the uh, civil and criminal enforcement uh, of investigating equity investors and how they manage the home health, the home, excuse me, the healthcare industry business once they take it over. I think next in 2020 will be uh, false claim act defendants will have a new area to explore for defense at the intersection of Alina, Sarah Care, and the branding Granston memos. We all know that um, Alina, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case decided uh, 7-1, basically held that no rule requirement or other statement of policy other than the national coverage determination that establishes changes a substantive legal standard for payment of services um, is can be used as a basis for enforcement if it hasn't gone through the standard rulemaking notice and comment period. Uh, uh, this year, recently, in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, in Polanski versus Executive Health Resources, uh, the, uh, the district court uh, followed Alina and found that FCA claims premised on a CMS rule that did not go through the rulemaking and comment period, uh, and which created a substantive standard, could not form the basis of a False Claims Act enforcement case. Uh, 
We all know about the brand memo, which articulates the government's position on Alina and the application of that case, uh, particularly that payment rules and guidance documents that don't go through the process of rulemaking and, and notice cannot form the basis of enforcement actions, and this includes local coverage determinations, although those guidance documents can be used to establish uh, materiality and center elements, they can't alone establish falsity. Um, so Brand's interpretation of Alina is going to give be fertile grounds for uh, defense attorneys in the False Claims Act space and will be a challenge to plaintiffs, relators, counsel, and the government pursuing those claims. A Sarah Kerr's finding that uh, dueling expert opinions isn't sufficient for falsity, absent objective evidence that defendant's knowledge of falsity also provides fertile grounds for um, defense. And those, the brand memo and a Sarah Kerr and Alina give defense counsel in a false claims act cases a strong opportunity to argue that the Granson memo should apply and lead to government dismissals in false claims act cases. Um, interesting would be how district courts continue to apply Alina to False Claims Act uh, theories and uh, how those parameters are further defined in 2020. And that would be the extent of my prognostication for 2020 in this field. Great. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Really appreciate those uh, important insights on uh, the enforcement uh, spectrum in 2020. And Katie, let me turn it over to you and, and ask uh, for your thoughts. I know we've got a lot of upcoming um, exciting uh, events in Washington, D.C. in 2020, including some elections and uh, some new regulations that we can expect or we've seen recently. What are your thoughts on 2020 and, and what are your predictions? Sure. Thank you, Matt. I, you know, I think that 2020 is going to be a really interesting year with a lot of uh, activity within the, the federal bureaucracy. And I think that that is where we will see a lot of the traction gaining uh, with respect to HHS, CMS, and FDA. As we look at the 2020 work plan from HHS OIG, I think they're going to be focusing in on a couple of key issues that really echo some of the sentiments that we're hearing in the election cycle, such as uh, pricing and price controls. We see in the work plan that there's a fair amount of emphasis placed on looking at some of the more uh, particular facets of government pricing, such as comparisons uh, between average manufacturer price and average sales price uh, through a couple of different lenses. And that indicates to me that the government is starting to get a little more serious about issues uh, with respect to uh, price controls and uh, the, the internal controls that are driving price reporting in manufacturers and to try to understand better how uh, rebate calculations might be Im impacting pricing overall. Uh, there seems to be a fair amount of appetite for this within the current Congress that uh, does get some mixed credit for success, depending on uh, who you're talking to. Uh, the House has actually passed some bills recently uh, that, that emphasize the imperative for PBM transparency. And I think that this, this whole concept of price transparency is something that we can continue to see discussed uh, within the campaign trails and, and similarly uh, echoed at various uh, agencies throughout the government. And within the FDA, uh, FDA really does seem to be quite busy these days. We've seen a number of uh, headlines in the news relating to issues such as uh, the cannabis oil, CBD products, 
uh, they seem to be really cropping up everywhere. I travel a lot throughout the country and I, I see these products really surfacing in, in various ways, both in the OTC environment and um, uh, some you know, type of dispensary-like environments and also coming through what are seemingly uh, legitimate pharmaceutical-like manufacturers. And uh, recently we saw about 15 warning letters that were uh, advanced by CEDAR relating to unapproved new drugs that they identified in, uh, with, through cannabidiol manufacturers, excuse me. And I think that what we can expect to see in 2020 is some clarification around uh, the FDA's thinking about these products where they've been somewhat silent for a while. I think that they're going to start really stepping up enforcement and sharpening their views on what is and is not um, an acceptable range of products in the marketplace, whereas before we've seen something of a nebulous environment. And in that vein, I think we will also see a lot more communication and more, um, more firm communications coming from FDA relating to uh, vapes and the use of vapes, especially with the uh, flavor materials that seem to be uh, creating some consternation in the public sphere. That, I think, is also going to be a topic that we'll see on the stumps throughout the election cycle. But uh, between Congress and the FDA, I think that we'll see some action in that regard. Well, that's great, Katie. And I know you've already touched on it, but if you think um, any any thoughts on uh, continued pressure and drug pricing transparency or the recent proposal to require hospitals to disclose their standard fees, do you think that will have an impact on fraud and abuse enforcement and, and perhaps um, thoughts on how that might have such an impact? I think that that is actually something that's really interesting. They've uh, A couple of different proposals have surfaced and uh, I think that there is a, a real desire for creativity to try to, to um, hammer down pricing transparency from various aspects of the supply chain. And I feel like if it is a, a successful initiative, what will ultimately happen is that um, companies or hospitals are going to end up having to take a position on pricing. And to the extent that the controls that support uh, the calculation of those prices and the disclosure of those prices are sound, um, there, there should be some level of protection in the face of additional enforcement. If it's the case that those controls are um, are weak or not well managed, then it could be the case that hospitals and manufacturers and others that support the ultimate uh, pricing determinations find themselves in a, a bit of a bind um, because the the methods that are used to derive these calculations and any uh, services or transfers of value that may support or undermine the disclosures could then uh, be front and center in, in litigation matters, especially with respect to fraud and abuse litigation. Interesting. Interesting. That's great insight. Great insight. Thank you so much, Katie. And and thank you also, Kevin. Really appreciate your thoughts on enforcement and and uh, really appreciate the listeners uh, tuning in to the podcast, our first podcast here from the Fraud and Abuse Practice Group. Uh, if you have any questions, please check out the AHLA Fraud and Abuse Practice Group page on AHLA's website for more information. And we look forward to next month's podcast. Again, thank you very much, BRG, for sponsoring our inaugural session here, and we thank you all for listening. Take care.